Okay, Exodus chapter 5, verses 22 onwards. Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you brought trouble upon these people? Is this why you sent me? Even since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon these people. And you have not rescued your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because, my might, because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will dry them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they lived as aliens. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from the, under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you to my own, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the, under the yoke, of the yoke of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land that I saw with uplifted hand to give Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses reported report this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to them because of their discouragement and cruel bondage. Then the Lord said to Moses, go, to, go tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of, this, out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, if the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me, since I speak with flattering lips? Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Aaron about the Israelites and Pharaoh, the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he condemned them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be here. I'm Pastor James. It's great to be here this morning as we open up God's Word together. If you're here for the first time and I haven't met you, well, welcome, and I'd love to get to know you after the service. So please stay around. Grab your Bibles, have them open in front of you to Exodus chapter 6. Now, if you don't have a Bible and you know what, you want one, we've got freebies up the back there, so go and grab one and you can follow along. But let's come to God's Word now, um, and we're going to have him speak to us this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you will work in our lives powerfully. Lord, correct our thinking, speak to us, help us to delight in you more. And to see the wonder and the beauty of who you really are, that you've made yourself known to us, and ultimately you've made yourself known to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Reassure us this morning of your faithfulness. Reassure us of your goodness and your grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Tabor um, Laughlin, he was a man and his family, and they went to China as missionaries. Sold out for Jesus. They packed up and they moved to China because China needed to hear the gospel. 
sold out following Jesus, keen to serve him in ministry and to follow the Great Commission where Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. Excited to serve and to follow him and to speak of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. Excited to go. Missionaries. And, and I wonder whether we here this morning, in a, in a way, still have the same sense. We're excited to be here in Toon Gabby. We want to be following Jesus. We want to be making disciples of Jesus. And we too have a sense of anticipation of God working through the preaching of his gospel. But then sometimes life doesn't go our way. Sometimes things pop up, resistance happens, and life isn't exactly how we planned it to be. Have a listen to what Tabor Laughlin, he writes, he says, I never imagined digging the grave of my own daughter. The day of her funeral was cold and rainy. It seemed appropriate for what we were doing. My wife, daughter and I were driven far up the mountain by a friend and his family. The place was remote we couldn't see the horizon in any direction. All we could see was the top of a dirt road and no one else was in sight. And with a friend's shovel, we dug a grave. He and I taking turns. The dig was solemn and it was silent and the ground was soft from the rain. I couldn't help but think about the missionary John G. Patton, who was from the 19th century, who buried his wife and child with his own bare hands, both of his loved ones dying young. I thought stories of digging graves for loved ones were only for missionaries from centuries ago. Things like that didn't happen anymore, but I was wrong. The very thing was happening to me. With the grave dug and the struggling through the tears, I said a few words about our small daughter. I gave thanks to God for her life. And then we had some prayer time together. We lowered her casket into the grave. I filled her grave with dirt. We put flowers and a rock on top of the grave site. It's a grave site we will never find again, even if we wanted to. And my repeated words, my repeated thoughts was, is this really happening to me? Is this really happening to us? Have you ever found yourself asking that question, is this really happening to us? Why God? Really? We're sold out for you. We're laying everything on the line here for you. We're following Jesus. We're serving. We're tapped into a local church. I'm sh I thought this was meant to be easier. Why? Is it worth continuing on? And I wonder, can you identify in some way with Moses as well? You may not have had to dig the grave of a young daughter, but maybe you feel inadequate. Maybe you feel washed up. Maybe there's just things in your past where you feel like a major failure and life is just not how you wanted it to be. See, Moses here in this passage, he, he cries out. Did you notice as John read in verse 22 of chapter 5, Why, Lord, why? You, why have you sent me? You can see that he's, he's questioning God. He's bringing his grievances before the Lord. Why, God? You know, you, why did you bother sending me there? I told you way back at the burning bush, do not send me. 
and yet you send me and these Israelites, they've now turned on me and they think I'm obnoxious to them. But we also know that God did say to him, you know, well, it is going to be tough. Pharaoh's not exactly going to let the people go. But I wonder, can you, can you feel with Moses in this moment? Or, I wonder, there's a couple of ways we often can think of Moses, isn't there? The first one is, we can be sitting in this room and we can be self-righteous morally and we go, you know what, Moses, just pick up. Come on, mate. Look, you were there at the burning bush. You should know better, Moses. That's our self-moral righteousness. Now saying, no, no, we would have trusted God. We'd have better faith. Moses, why can't you just... Come on, mate. But I think the reality is that probably most of us in this room are more like Moses of going, why God? Why me? On the other end. See, God has given promises to Moses, but it's not turned out how Moses probably thought it would turn out. And he brings his pain and his grievances to God. I think this passage is so helpful for us in those trouble moments, in those dark moments, in those times in ministry. I think this, this is so good. Why? Because God says, you can cry out to me. We have this idea we can't cry out and say my world is falling apart. But here Moses is really real. Unlike the Israelites, he actually turns to God and says, God, why? He brings his grievances and his concerns to the almighty God. Because see, last week we've seen that for the Israelites, it's going to get a whole lot worse before it's going to even get better. I've put my life on the line, God. And he's losing hope. God, what are you doing? And I wonder if any of you here today are the same. You know, you're in a Bible study group, you're leading a Bible study group, and the fruit is just not there. They just don't seem to be getting it. Maybe you're here as, as a, a young family, and your teenage son or your teenage daughter says, you know what, mum and dad, I don't want anything to do with God. I don't want you to read the Bible with me. I don't even want to come to church with you. You think, man, what am I going to do? Am I a failure? Or as grandparents, you sit here and you realize your parenting and the things that you said and did have affected your kids and your grandkids. And you think, God, am I a failure? What have I done? But how does God respond to Moses? He responds. He doesn't belittle Moses. He doesn't crush Moses. He doesn't say, Moses, come on, mate, pick it up. But instead, God is not phased one bit by the questions that Moses asks, but instead God gives him an ear and he hears our cries. He knows our situations and we see that God loves us and God reassures him in the midst of a tough situation. See, God speaks to Moses and he reassures him in a tough situation. He assures us of who we are. See, it's very easy, I think, often for us to come to the Bible and we think, I want to hear 10 steps today of what I must do. I've sat with blokes before and other people and, and sort of helped them preach and work through a text, make sure the text is right. But often one of the things that we often do, especially if you're a doer, is we want to know what to do. We want application, do, do, do. But can I tell you, friends, that actually sometimes the book of, the Ex- book of Exodus isn't telling you what to do, it just wants to reshape your thinking. It wants to re- remind you of who God really is. So that as we go out, we know how to respond in relation to that. And so God reassures us today, when trouble and dark days come, when trouble and, and tough days come, be reassured firstly, one of three today, one of three points, God really is in control. Be reassured, God really is in control. We may be in a hurry to get things done for God, but our timing is different to God's timing. See, God is really in control and has eternity to do his promises. 
Check out how Yahweh, check out how the Lord in capital letters, how the Lord responds to Moses in verse 1. Now you will see what I will do, Pharaoh. You will see what I'll do to Pharaoh, Moses. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out. Earlier on, we see there's a mighty hand of Pharaoh, but here God says, no, I'm the mighty hand. See, the God of the universe, the one who created the, the, the universe and like the 50 billion galaxies that we have got, the God who was above this universe, he says, Moses, I'm just going to reach down my mighty hand and just save these people. So I'm in control. It's like a chess player. You know, a chess player reaches down and he moves a few pieces or she moves a few pieces. Like God's saying, no, no, I'm in control here. It's going to happen. I'm going to drive them out. He's saying, I am in control. But he moves on. So you notice how he, he, it's very clear God's in control here because of his mighty hand. But in verses 2 to, to 5, or actually in, two verse, in verse 2 through to verse 23, we're going to see that God five times, he says, I am the Lord. In verse 2, in verse 6, in verse 7, in verse 8, in verse 29, God says, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I am who I will be. Five times in this chapter, God says, I am. So that's a self-sufficient, self-existent God, the God who's outside of time. The God who was above creation. He says, I am the Lord. He reminds him five times. He's saying, I'm in control, mate. It's in my hands, Moses. I've got this. He reassures him of who he is. Who we think is in control will be revealed in our prayer life. The things you bring to God in prayer are the things you trust God to handle. But those other things in our, that we don't bring in our prayer life are the things that oh, I trust myself to handle pretty well. Do you ever find that? Yeah. So the things we pray about are the things we go, yep, God, I can't, I'm not good with this. Can you look after it? But everything else that I'm handling well, I forget to bring to prayer. I wonder, what are you afraid of this week? What were the things you feared this week? What was in your life where you were nervous and worried about tomorrow? What are those fears? I love what Elizabeth Elliot says. I'm quoting Elizabeth Elliot here who says, Fear arises when we imagine everything depends on us. See that? Fear arises when we imagine everything depends on us. And I, and I wonder if Moses is feeling that heat a little bit, like, God, you've sent me, so it depends on me to make this happen. People have turned on me back, and it's just going terrible. It's going. But God said, no, 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 it's... it's I'm going to use you, but I've got this. I'm in control. I. It's true, isn't it? We do fear what we can't control. Do you find yourself always saying yes? You're actually deeply afraid of saying no because people may think less of you, and they're dependent on they're, they're dependent upon me. And so if I don't say yes. Our friendship could be destroyed. So we, 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 we think everyone's dependent upon us for life and breath and meaning. And so we just get so busy in life trying to not fear. <laughs> because fear, it's, it's horrible, isn't it? Because when we fear, it's, we're thinking everyone's dependent upon us in that situation. But my friends, if, if your friendship is dependent upon you being dependent that your, if your friendship is dependent upon other people depending upon you, can I just tell you that's probably not friendship? Look at the disciples of Jesus. 
They stuffed up all the time and yet Jesus didn't push them away. God's got it. They're in the, you notice the Israelites, they're stuck, they're stuck into Moses in the previous passage from last week. You let us down, you're a stink. But God reassures Moses here and he reassures us, I'm in control. God is really in control. But do you ever find yourself questioning God and thinking, yeah, but God, okay, you've promised this, but it hasn't happened. I've read the New Testament, God, you've promised these things will happen, but in my life, I'm not experiencing those promises right now. Or I don't feel like I'm experiencing those promises. God, you said this and it has not happened. Therefore, can I actually trust your word? When is that going to happen? I've prayed for healing. God, have you forgotten us? You said you're going to make us more like Jesus, but man, I'm still wrestling with this sin. God, you're in control. You say you're in control, but I'm not quite so sure. Well, isn't it wonderful that God has heard us? He hears Moses, he hears the people's cries, and he comforts them in verse 4 to 5. Because see, in verse 4 to 5, he reminds Moses and he's reminding people, I've made a covenant, I've made a promise. Have a look at verse 4. I also established my covenant. See, a covenant is a promise between two parties. Two parties enter into a covenant. And God's saying, I have established a covenant with the Israelites to give them land, to give them the land of Canaan. I've promised to give them a land flowing full of milk and honey, but they haven't got there yet. I've promised that. They've been there, they've been foreigners, but they're going to come back. I've promised that. Then you get down to verse 5 and he says, I have remembered my covenant. Now, I wonder when we hear the word remember, I wonder when you think, oh, did God, you know, oh, he forgot that he made that covenant. You know, like, you've got to understand this is 400, 450, like this is, this is not just yesterday when God made this promise. It's hundreds of years beforehand, God has said to Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to bless all nations. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a seed. I'm going to be, give you a blessing or bless the world. And, and it's like, but hang on, that hasn't happened yet, has it? So obviously God has forgotten his promises. So is, is that what God's saying? Oh, thank goodness, Moses, I've now remembered that promise. Well, no. God's just saying, no, I've, got, I, I've made that promise and I'm working it out. I, I, I've got permission to share this story, okay? This time I'm going to talk about my wife. Normally I'm supposed to take the mickey out of myself. But this time, I'm, you know, one of those things that happens in our household is um, my lovely wife around dinner or a little bit earlier, she'll say, darling, darling, can you take the bins out tonight? Now what do I say? Yes, dear, I promise to do that, right? So I'm going, I'm going to take the bins out tonight. And she's like, good, that's great, thank you. And so I've promised to my lovely wife, I'm going to take the bins out. 20 minutes later, my wife says, you haven't taken the bins out yet. Right? I'm like, it's okay. You know, an hour later, she says, you haven't taken the bins out yet. Yeah. No, I know. I, I remembered my promise. I, I'm going to take the bins out. And then two hours later, you haven't taken the bins out. You've forgotten, haven't you? And I'm like, no, no, I've, I've promised to take the bins out. Because see, in my mind, as I've made that promise, I've made the promise knowing at 10.30 that night I'm going to take the bins out. Now, sometimes I'm not God, I do forget, right? But I've made in my mind, right, 10.30, I'm going to take the bins out, that's when I'm going to do it. And so I've, I've planned my night. This is how it's all going to fit together. And when God says, I've remembered my covenant, I think it's a bit like, he, he said, 
I've made a promise. God knows when it's going to come to full fruition. <laughs> and yet sometimes I think we, we, we forget, don't we? And he said, no, no, I've remembered it. We may be in a hurry, but God's not. And so when trouble and tough days come our way, my friends, be reassured God is really in control. But secondly, God without doubt will bring us home. Not only do we see how God reassures Moses that he's in control, that he's a God who loves. See that idea of I have remembered my covenant, that's love. That's a, he's, he loves his people dearly, that he's made a promise to them. But he also, re, he also reassures us that he will bring us home. See, just like the Exodus, like these people, God is, Jesus has also promised to us that he's going to come back one day and bring us home. See, in verses 1 to 5, Moses is being spoken to and God's saying, look, I am the Lord, that's present. Here's a present reality, I am the Lord who is in control. But did you notice in verses 6 to 12, it shifts to a future tense. I will, so he's saying, in the future, I will do these things. There is seven I will statements. Have a look, verse I've underlined in my Bible, verse 6. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. The second one is, I will free you from being slaves to them. Thirdly, I will redeem you with outstretched arms. Fourthly, I will take you as my own. Fifthly, I will be your God. Then in verse 8, it says, and I will bring you to the land. And then at the end of verse 8, it says, I will give it to you. Do you notice it's, I will do these things. It's going to happen. I'm going to bring you. And I love the word redeem here. It's, it's been used before in Genesis, but it's, it's not a common word that's used often yet in the Bible. But this word of redemption is actually, it's, it's almost like a financial transaction. It's, it's a transaction that takes place. In, in the ancient world, if, if a, if a, a mum and her children and her husband passed away and she had debt, she had land, she had things to do, another man, a brother or someone else would be a kingsman redeemer who would come along and purchase her and the family wipe the debt and give them his name. They would adopt, they become family and he would provide for her, he would protect her and he would purchase her. Do you see what God's saying here? He's saying, I'm going to redeem you. I will and, and for us we have seen that Jesus is, I am the way, the truth and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. See, Jesus has redeemed us. He's purchased us. He's made us his own. And maybe you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus. You're here for the first time and you're wondering, who is Jesus? Well, I encourage you to find out more, to, to, to delve into the pages of Scripture and you'll see that God's plan unfolds and you go, wow, look who Jesus is. He has come to redeem. Did you notice that? I've come to rescue my people. And we've been rescued from our slavery to sin. But I, I think there's something even more beautiful here that we so often miss. Not only has he rescued them, but he's rescued them so that they're his. That I will be your God. That you will be my people and I will be your God. I think that is something that the church, you know, we've, we've slightly sometimes presented this idea of the gospel of getting you out of hell into heaven and we produced people who say you know what I've got an insurance policy they love the idea of heaven but they don't love the idea of Jesus being there 
We've created this, this, this warped sense of what it is to be a Christian, that actually being a Christian is, I've been rescued from my sin and now I get to live a happy life in heaven however I want to live. But actually, no, 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 the Bible's very clear. We've been rescued and we've been brought home so that God will be our God and we will live for him. See, the beautiful thing about being a Christian is it's not that you're going to get to heaven, it's that you get Jesus. And you get to live with him forever in his city, in his world, with him. And that's what, what, in a way, Exodus is giving us a foreshadow as well, I think. Because see, the book of Exodus, it doesn't just, it's not just an amazing book where God has rescued these people out of oppression for the sake of rescuing them out of oppression. No, he's rescued them. And what we're going to see in our next series is he's rescued them so that he may dwell among his people. So the idea is I'm going to rescue them and here you can dwell with the very God who created the universe. That's the idea of the tabernacle. It's to be in God's presence. See, God rescues us so that we can dwell with him. And for us, because of Jesus, we dwell with God. See, how wonderful it is that we don't have to work to go into the presence of God. The beautiful thing is Christ has interceded in the heavenly realms. But we, we, we wrestle with that, don't we? Because of this, yet, this now and not yet as Christians. We're, we're in this world. We're saved. The Holy Spirit is in us. We are a holy temple of God, right? God dwells in us. But we're also waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. And here we have this picture that not only am I going to redeem you, but you're going to be mine and you're going to dwell with me. Did you see how deep God wants a relationship with you? He wants a deep, deep relationship. I want to take you as my own and I'll be your God. Isn't it beautiful to know that salvation isn't about what I can do? See, salvation isn't about what I can do for Jesus. It's about what Jesus has done for us. See, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. At the end of all time, it won't be you and your own effort and your strength bringing yourself home. It will be solely Jesus alone. I love Billy Graham where he says, I'm not going to, get, I'm not going to heaven because... Have a listen. Billy Graham gets it. I'm not going to heaven because I preach to great crowds. I'm not going to heaven because I read my Bible and attended church. No, I'm going to heaven because of Jesus. And I'm just like that man on the cross, that thief. I'm just like him. It's Jesus who brings us home. He's going to bring us home. See, when trouble and tough days come, be reassured that he got, got God he, he's really has control. But be assured, he's going to bring us home in those tough and those dark moments. I will bring about my promises. I'm going to bring you home. But thirdly, God uses, he, he uses dysfunctional people. He, God uses dysfunctional people like you and me. Now that, that's um, what's going on here in the rest of the chapter now John didn't read the rest of the chapter it's a genealogy now you know I, I plan my sermon my sermon series well I gave RJ the circumcision passage with Moses and the touching the foreskin on the feet you know you think man that's a bit of an awkward passage and so I thought well best just let, let RJ touch that now actually I would have loved to have done it but I wasn't here but today you know but I've, I've given myself the genealogy passage 
Now have a look there in verse 14. These are the heads of their families, the, the son of Reuben, the first son of Israel, and, and it just goes on and on and on. I don't know about you and your daily reading plan. You think, man, do I have to really read the genealogies? What's in a genealogy? But see, God has put the genealogy here for a reason because you could easily leave the genealogy out and just get to chapter 17 and it would all just flow. But God has put it here for a reason. In the first week, we saw that God is a God on mission. Genealogies remind us God has a plan and purpose. But also, it reminds the people of Israel that Moses and Aaron are legit. They really are Israelites because the genealogy is all about Aaron. And so it's saying to us and it's saying to the Israelites, no, Aaron really is an Israelite. It's really legit. Moses, is, he's an Israelite. So imagine why Exodus is written. Like God's people, they might have been on the edge of the promised land. They're about to conquer Jericho. They're about to go into a land filled with Canaanites that outnumber them and they read the book of Exodus. How comforting and reassuring it is to know that God's in control. He'll bring us home and he uses dysfunctional people like Moses and Aaron. So he's going to use you. Imagine the people of God in Babylon as they're about to come out of exile and they're going to go back to the land and it just outnumbers them and they're just thinking, how is this going to happen? Exodus reminds them that God uses dysfunctional people like you and me. See, not only does it show us that Moses and Aaron are legitimate people I think it shows us the ordinariness of Moses and Aaron see these guys are pretty ancient by the time they go to Pharaoh like they're old you know Moses is packing 80 and I think Aaron's the older brother so they're not exactly the pinnacle of life and when you and me pick a CEO of a company what do we do we look at a resume they they, like they've got a they've got a they've got a sing on a resume now Moses and Aaron aren't going to sing on paper And God is not surprised, right? God's not surprised by their resume. I will use you, so don't you look to you. So often we look at ourselves, don't we, rather than looking to God. We look at our own inabilities, our own failures, our inadequacies, instead of looking to the God who has made us. He says, don't look to you, look to me. See, Moses and Aaron come, here it is, I'm going to talk about they come from a pretty dysfunctional family. Have a look, I want you to grab your Bibles. Just have a look how dysfunctional they are for a moment. Now we can look at the good stuff, but let's have a look at the dysfunctional bit. Right, verse 23. So Aaron married Elishabah, daughter of Aminadad, and sister of Nashon. Now, here's a side note just for a moment. Those two names you find in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. And she bore him Nadab and Abihu. Now, these two kids, they're a bit... They're the black sheep of the family. <laughs> they're, the, they're the two guys who decided we're going to get a bit experimental in worshipping God. Now God tells us how to worship him, but they thought we're going to experiment in our own way. Didn't go too well. Now, now go to verse um, 21. The sons of Izhar were Korah and Nepheg. Now Korah, he, he's, he's this bloke who decided I'm going to cause a mutiny among the people of God and we're going to raise up and we're going to take Moses out. Right, he's not exactly, well, he's recorded the Bible, he's not exactly the most example. A bit dysfunctional. Now, then look at verse 20. Amram married his father's sister, Josebed, who bore him Aaron and Moses. Now, Aaron and Moses' mum was just, just Seabed. Now, I don't know, if you, if you read this very quickly, you just skim over it. But imagine this. Oh, I don't know, this is, Moses goes to school this first day. 
He's got his little lunch packed and he's off to school. The principal comes over. Good morning, Moses. It's great to be here at this school. We're going to, we're going to bring you in. Oh, hi, Dad. Hey, what's your name? Yeah. And then, because I love, and sort of like, oh, who's this? Oh, it's, it's my mum. And then, and then Aaron just pops up. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's his art as well. This, Aaron's, Aaron's mum is actually his aunt. And, and imagine, you know, the, as a teenager, as the other kids see Aaron's mum and Moses' mum walk through the play field, they say, hey, Moses, hey, Aaron, here's your mum coming to bring you your lunch. And other boys go, yeah, but he's, he's your aunt as well. It's sort of like, the, you know, he's married, his mum's also his aunt, but yet his mum. You know, it's... It's humorous, but yet it's also at the same time just telling us that they're ordinary people with very dysfunctional lives. And yet God uses them. How reassuring it is that King Jesus, week in, week out, in the midst of our failures and our dysfunctionality, uses us. That God's love is greater and bigger than our failures. That God's love is greater and bigger than our inadequacies. What a picture for you here today. Be reassured, God uses dysfunctional people like me he uses that you know it's I've realised in my own life you know it's it's been great to be here a year I love it been here a year it's great to have Pastor RJ join us on staff it's great to work with Agnes and it's great that Tash is going to come and join us on staff and it's, it's, it's a really great and I pray that God will continue to grow our staff and it's a wonderful thing to, to hang out with staff and to be beside them to pray for you guys to love you guys because see our job is to free us up to do gospel ministry that you're not paying me and the other pastor to do things so that you don't have to do them. No, no, no. What you're doing is we want to come here and we want to lead you into, so that you delight in Jesus, you love Jesus, and you know our part and our plan to make disciples of Jesus here at Toon Gabby Baptist. It's a beautiful thing for us to be doing that as staff and to have Tash come on as well to free us up, not to worry about this building, but to worry about preaching the gospel. It's great to have Agnes there to do admin and to do those things for us. But it's something beautiful about it. At the same time, as, as I sit there and I hang out with these people, they're gifted, they're talented, and you start to realise, oh, I'm actually not. <laughs> wow, they, they bring something I can't. And in a way, there are moments in ministry where sometimes you just feel like a fraud. What am I doing here, God? How can you use me? Like, look at everyone else. There's times where you just feel like, why God? Are you, why am I? Why are you using me? And that's he uses Moses. He uses Aaron. Now here's something not to do with this passage. You're not Moses, right? God's not calling you to go to Egypt right now, rescue people, and part the Red Sea. That's not going to happen, right? I'm pretty sure that ain't going to happen in your ministry. But we're going to be dysfunctional and just ordinary people like them. The beauty of this picture for us, unlike Moses, right? God said, I will to Moses. The beauty is we've seen that God has. So these things that he promises to Moses, we've seen actually have happened. We've seen even a grander picture, we've seen the, the cross of Jesus Christ. See, Tim Chester says this, he says, if you're struggling to obey God... You don't, need to, you don't need more willpower. 
You just need to know God more. We need to know God more. Be reassured, God is really in control. God, without doubt, will bring us home, and God uses dysfunctional people like you and me. And in our doubt, in our darkness, in those days where we just feel like we're like Moses, when ministry just is overwhelming, people are not responding. When we seek to see people say yes to Jesus, but it just seems to be falling on, on flat ears. And when you start to think and wonder, did God really promise that for us? Where is it? It's in those moments, my friends, let's be reminded of what we do know. It's in those moments where we turn to the cross. In those dark moments, we look to the cross of Christ and it reminds us that God is a loving God who keeps his promises. We sit at the foot of the cross every time we doubt, every time we fear, every time we are worried about tomorrow. My friends, may we wake up every day and remind each other of the cross of Christ when we doubt. Because God is in control, he is without doubt going to bring us home and he's going to use us dysfunctional people for the sake of his kingdom. And we get to partake in his plan, in his mission. What a, what a great passage for us today to be reminded of. That God is really in control. Without doubt he's going to bring us home and he just uses dysfunctional people like you and me. But I, I want to I bring it home now for us as we close. One of those ways, is, I, I want to for a moment just talk about, um, I want to talk about community life here at Tungabi. You know, I wonder whether you sometimes feel lost in the crowd here. I wonder if sometimes, it is a big crowd here, there's a lot of people here, and I wonder do you feel like I'm not always connected, I, I don't get to know everyone by name, is there times and moments here where you feel like, man, I, just, I wish I could just grab the pastor, but he's talking to someone else? You see other people in little groups. Can I encourage you that that's not a bad feeling? Sometimes we think that's bad. Actually, it's a good thing. I think because God's growing us, he's changing us, he's, he's working among us and that brings people here. We've been growing and seeing people come along and, and that changes how we do stuff. And so we, we sometimes just struggle with that. But here is our passion for life groups. See, RJ, our pastor, RJ, who's looking after maturity, he's passionate about life groups over the next five years. He's trying to work out what are we going to do with life groups? What do we want to see their place? And I think life groups is one of the best places where we can be connected as a church. On a Sunday, we can't do that with this many people in the room. But during the week, one of the best ways we can connect, one of the best ways we can love one another is to be in doing community together. See, what I love about it is that you know, Jesus had 12 disciples. You know, he couldn't go to the whole crowd, but he could love a few. And that's where life groups come in, I reckon. It's a place where we get theological understanding. It's a place where we do life together. It's a place where we connect we care for one another. It's a place where it's really exciting to be. Because one of the things for us is that in our dark days, what do we need? We need someone else to intervene. Did you notice that the Israelites were broken-spirited? When you're broken-spirited, you don't see God. You need a divine intervention. And isn't it wonderful that we could grow and go, you know what? You're in a life group. And there's a young couple who for three years have been trying to have kids and you journey with them and they're broken, they're crying and you walk alongside with them and you pray for them. You do life with them at the same time. Then what do you do? You, you point them to the gospel and you go, God is good. Isn't it a wonderful thing, an expression to, to do life together when you're a couple with older kids and one gets cancer? 
and you journey together in a small group where you love one another, you walk with them, you pray for them, and you say, you know what? God's got it. Look at the cross. We need that, don't we? We need people every day. What COVID has told me last year is that we forget the good news of Jesus all the time. I needed my wife to remind me. I needed to remind my wife. You needed me to remind you. And you. We need to be reminding each other that in those tough days, be reassured God is in control. God, without doubt, will bring us home. And God uses dysfunctional people like you and me. And the book, at the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, have a listen to what John says to us as I close. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Let's pray. Father, we, we forget in the midst of our broken spirits, in the midst of dark days, we, we, we forget that you're the good God who loves us. You're the God who's made promises to us. And unlike us, we break our promises, but you never break your promises. And we've seen that through the book of Exodus Ultimately, we've seen that at the the cross. And Father, we're going to see that in eternity. Where we will be with you, your people, in your place, living for eternity. And so, Father, reassure us today. Father, give us courage to reassure each other over coffee and morning tea. To pray for one another, to reassure one another, and to delight in Jesus. Because you are the God who is able.